We've been out of First Peter for two weeks, but in the previous two messages, we've been exploring themes that have been unfolded to us in the first five verses. Shepherding and the summons to shepherding and the reward of shepherding and the, the glory and honor and blessing for those who engage in, uh, as we saw last week, building up or serving in or ministering in God's, God's house. So now we return to this magnificent letter. Uh, we'll have two more sermons in addition to this message in First Peter, Lord willing, and then we'll be done. We'll have a few standalone sermons after that. And uh, after that, there will be a series uh, on the Psalms as some of the other brothers in our church who can uh, come up here and preach. We'll preach from the Psalms, continuing that ongoing series. Then we'll jump right into Second Peter. Very eager for that as well, just to give you some information about what's happening. I want to set these verses, particularly verses uh, really 5 through 7, but mainly 6 and 7, in the context of the whole letter. And, and this, this section, it's called in big theology talk, pericope, verses 6 through 11, um, really form what I would call the capstone of the letter. Because a major portion of First Peter has been dealing with the interplay between godly submission, even to ungodly authority, and then suffering in the face of mistreatment, even while we're being submissive. So the interplay between those two ideas has formed, in many ways, the majority of the letter. It began in chapter 2, verse 13, and goes all the way to the end of chapter 4 the interplay between those two ideas, and it just goes on and on and on, and I'm sure you felt the weightiness of that and the repetition of some of those ideas. So it seems a little abrupt now for the beginning of verse uh, chapter 5, rather, for Peter to address elders. What's that all about? There are several reasons, but one of the reasons is we saw when we got into the section is that it is a central component or prerequisite of obedience to the difficult commands of Jesus and his apostles that we, in fact, have godly shepherds. Godly shepherds help us obey commands, even when they are as distasteful as submitting to less-than-ideal authorities and being kind to those who would oppose us. So, summing up everything Peter has said, he underscores the need for humility and the right frame of mind as we'll see in two weeks when we resume the letter with verse 8. So, if we are going to obey the Lord Jesus, we need humility. If we are going to have faithful shepherds in the church and we are going to be submissive to them in the way that God commands, and if they are going to lead in the way that God commands, following the example of the Lord Jesus, then we are going to need boatloads of humility. And that's putting it lightly. In the immediate context, then, we see that this is in connection with this, this idea of leadership, submission, and humility. He's introduced this dynamic between elders or shepherds and those who are younger, implying the necessary response of submission to godly shepherds. Then, in the context of that shepherding and submission and obedience context, he says, and every one of you needs to have humility. The world is prone to say, power corrupts, and they are right. But power or authority with humility is a blessing from God and is for your benefit. 
Humility is the aroma and glue that holds the church together. And that, in fact, proves love to be genuine. The world is on a quest for true love. And all the while, the test of true love has been there from the beginning. And it is humility. And so we come to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I've said jokingly before that you always have to have a level of worry or consternation whenever you come to a verse, and in the verse is the word therefore. Preachers love that word because it just opens up a window to speak about everything we've already talked about and been excited about, just to remind you. But this connects this section on humility with verse 5. This is why we read verses 1 through 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, I think this, this is what he's directly pointing to with the therefore. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If that is the case, this, this is the apostle's argument. If that is the case, that God in fact opposes the proud, but on the other hand gives grace to the humble, then you should humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How then ought we to live? Humility is the obvious answer if it is in fact the case that God pours out grace towards those that are humble. It's so obvious because the one thing we need most in the world is God's grace. We mentioned this the last time we were in 1 Peter dealing with verses 4 and 5. God hates pride. He despises it. You don't need to know a whole lot about the Bible to know that that is the case. But if you know just a little bit about the prophets specifically, you know that God's hatred of pride runs very deep. And in fact, Judgment Day is set in the context of the day upon which God will come and break down everything that is lofty and lift it up. Judgment Day may be thought of as this, the day God finally ends pride. He gives grace to the humble. He resists or becomes the opponent, the enemy of those who are proud. So it is so, so simple, but it is oh so hard. He says, humble yourselves. How do you humble yourselves? How do you humble yourself? And I think this is what makes it so hard. You don't have to think about growing old. It just happens. You don't really have to think about, at least in our culture, making sure you have a good meal, especially if you're one of the young ones in here, which you outnumber us adults. You don't have to think about your next meal. Your parents just provide it for you. We have schedules. We have everything else, and our lives generally just fall into place, and the next thing to do is pretty obvious. But how do you humble yourself? Have you ever actually tried? Set out? with a plan, maybe a New Year's resolution, I will humble myself this year. Did you know that there's really nothing, nothing better to do with your time than to humble yourself? Really? Nothing better? Whenever a preacher makes a statement like that, you should call time out in your head. 
I generally work really, really hard to avoid always, only, never, nothing language as much as I can. Because we preachers, when we see something really clear and we, we fixate on it, you're like, this, this explains everything. And then we, we gallivant through all of the Christian life or the worldview and explain it all in that context. But even in light of that, I stand by the statement, there is nothing better you can do with your time than to humble yourself. Even versus maybe something as revered as reading your Bible or studying theology. This is what Thomas Akempis says. Humble knowledge of ourselves is a surer way to God than is the search for the depth of learning. It's absolutely true. To humble oneself is the fastest and sharpest on-ramp to a life like Jesus and thinking like he did. It is the seedbed, humility that is, is the seedbed from which all of his mighty acts of redemption come. But someone will object, well, what about love? Isn't love the superior virtue? That's a fair point. But what passes in your heart by your own analysis as love is often very corrupt. And I can say that because I know myself. It's self-serving or cold. The more foundational or maybe prerequisite type thing that we need in order to even love the chief of the virtues, even for the Lord Jesus, was humility. In order to put real love into action for us, or to purify and improve the quality of our love. That, that What we need in order to do that is humility. Here's how it connects, I think. If you want a just real simple statement. Only humble people can truly love. And that's the God honest truth. And here's the reason I make this claim. Because God gives grace to the humble. And He opposes the proud. There's nothing else, in my opinion, that needs to be said in order to prove to you that humbling yourself is the best use of your time. Here's the logic. Number one, you're a sinner. If anyone wants to dispute that, we can talk later. You're a sinner. Number two, therefore, you must have grace from God. The need for grace in your life is the highest order. It is number one. And there's nothing that compares to it. Because you are a sinner, you must have God's grace. So number three... How do you get grace in the position of a sinner? How can we, as it were, draw the Lord to our case and maybe incite Him to pour out grace on us? Answer, humble yourself. He gives grace to the humble. And it will always be undeserved. Grace will always be undeserved by definition because of our sin. But He desires to give His undeserved grace to those who will humble themselves. And for some, praise His name. He begins giving grace by humbling you. Pray for the Lord to do that. So there is no other way All of God's grace, yes, even the grace we need unto salvation is on the far end of humility. But we've not even answered how to do it yet. 
There are many, many bad ways to pursue humility. And there are about as many bad ways to pursue humility as there are people. Please, don't import into your thoughts about this message all of your thoughts about humility. Most of what we think as people is very, very bad. The world even has its own definition of humility. You can go back as far as the Romans. Hubris, or pride, was the greatest vice. They valued some idea of humility. It wasn't Christ-like humility. And in our culture, too, we have some ideas of humility. They're far less developed, but even we in the church have often very, very bad ideas about what humility really is. But I'll say this right now. I'm not very interested in defining it for you. And that may shock you, but this text doesn't define it. So we're not going to. I'll tell you what's better and what this text does for us. It tells us how to start pursuing it. Because pride is such an affliction. This is what happens in our minds when we're proud. Even if we define humility correctly, as long as we're proud and we start trying to pursue humility, you'll end up somewhere else. That's the nature of pride. So what can you do? It's, It's hopeless. Unless, We've given the first step. And regardless of where we are in our minds, whatever we're doing, whatever is resonating in us, whatever we're thinking, however proud or humble we really are, we can start with what this text gives us. How to humble ourselves. So let's dive in. This grace, I just want to say before we dive in, this grace-humility dynamic is why we're lingering on this point. As as your pastor, as the preacher, I, I want so many things for you, now and into eternity. But the thing that you need most, that I need most, is God's grace. And if I would help you receive God's grace, then in many, many ways my job's done. I've been excited to preach this passage since before we even started 1 Peter. The one passage that I knew the most about in 1 Peter before we started the series is chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I love these verses. I have not mastered them, obviously, but I love them. They are so clear and so helpful and so foundational. And so we start with the true posture of humility towards God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is the first thing we need to know. Before we start pursuing an idea of humility, we must have the right posture towards God. At first glance, you might quickly assume what this phrase means in this context. Let me just ask you. You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't. But what comes to your mind when you hear a phrase, under the mighty hand of God? What images come to your mind? In your mind, as you think about humbling yourselves under God's mighty hand, do you see God on His throne in heaven with outstretched hand, with His scepter, and you down here, a creature of the dust, bowing in submission to His kingly rule? Or in your mind, when you hear it, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand or the mighty hand of God, do you see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of power? 
with his rod of iron in his hand. And you, a pardoned former rebel, who had rebelled against such a glorious king, bowing down, exposing your neck to him, willing to take whatever he says. Do you imagine Judgment Day, where in God's hand is his heavenly gavel, as it were, ready to slam it down and render judgment in your case and on the case of everyone else. And you down here being willing to yield whatever he says. Are those the types of images that come to your mind? All of those are real, and you should think about them. But that's not the imagery here. The title of the sermon is Rejoice, the Lord Cares for You. And obviously that draws primarily from verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him for He cares for you. But actually this statement, God's mighty hand, the mighty hand of God, in some ways underscores this idea of God's care even more than verse 7. There are over 20, and I only realized this recently, I loved these verses so, so much before I even realized this connection. Thankfully, there are such a thing called commentaries. There are over 20 instances of this phrase, depending on how you count, in the Old Testament. The mighty hand of God. And sometimes it's modified by the phrase, and his outstretched arm. And do you know, in virtually every case, there may be one or two exceptions, but in virtually every case, do you know what the allusion is to? Or the explicit reference is? The exodus. The Exodus. This is the only time in the New Testament this phrase is used. Twenty times in the Old Testament picked up and applied right here under God's mighty hand. So the imagery that Peter wants to come to his hearers' minds is God as deliverer. His mighty hand, his outstretched arm, then should not Bring images to your mind of God the judge, God the king, God the nation decimating one, at least not first. The immediate and primary image is depicting God as a caring father. Oh, there is an implication of his strong and wrathful, even terrible power in this statement but it is the context of his saving acts on behalf of his people. The imagery, if you will, is that of a father on an urgent rescue mission carrying his son or daughter in one arm and fending off with vengeance and violence anyone who would come and try to harm his child. That's the imagery. as he brings his sons and daughters to safety. So, as counterintuitive as it may seem, the first foundational building block to pursue humility is not to fear God's judgment. Those kinds of exhortations seem to be in the Bible given to those who are almost too far gone. There's only one thing if you become stiff-necked that will humble you, and that is threats 
of God's judgment. But we are not too far gone. We are those of the day. In your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So for us who are eagerly waiting for the return of the Son of God, humbling ourselves under His mighty hand is to stand in awe and will to believe the almost too good to be true statement, the Lord cares for you as His dearly beloved son or daughter. That is the foundation for the Christian in all humility. And it is counterintuitive. This is fascinating to me for so many reasons, but one of the more significant ones is this. It reveals the complexity of pride. Pride is not always just thinking too much of oneself. Pride is rooted in some way in a will to disbelieve or a will to not see just how dead set your Heavenly Father is on saving you and doing good to you. Was that not the issue in the Exodus? If this is the referent point, what was their failing? What was their main crux of unbelief? That God isn't going to save us. He's not going to take us into the good land. We just need to go back to Egypt. Was that not also the issue in the garden? Eve and Adam after her disbelieved that God was as good as He claimed to be. So to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand is to believe that He will deliver just like He promised. That He is as good as He says He is. They refused to believe that God was as good as He said He was. They refused to believe that He was going to fulfill His promises. So the fountain of pride itself is unbelief. And not just unbelief generally, unbelief towards God. Specifically about what He says regarding His goodness and love. Only in this kind of imagery, the rescuing Father do we see the appeal of submission to God? He is protector, defender, provider, supporter, shepherd, deliverer. And only in that context, showing us the degree of His love and self-giving care, does He ever say, follow me. What about us? This is somewhat of a side note for husbands and fathers, those who lead. Are you first protector, defender, provider, supporter, shepherd, deliverer before you ever say, follow me? So understand, it's not mere doubt that makes it hard for us to believe that God could be this good. It's pride. And why? Because in our pride, we tend to domesticate God. We bring Him down to us. We can't love like that. We don't possess that degree of self-giving love. We can't be that mighty to save. We can't be that kind. We can't be that patient. So we don't think that He really can be either. God says to the people, your mistake was this, that you thought that I was like you. And... I just want to ask you, have you ever stood in awe of the depths of God's commitment to love you and save you to the uttermost? 
if you have not come to that precipice where you can look down into that bottomless ocean of God's love, I'm afraid you may not understand the cross. Need we say more of the love of God and His fatherly and ferocious commitment to save you than that He slaughtered His only begotten Son so that He could save you? What kind of being are we dealing with? To see this God, the God who is there, to see His mighty hand that brings Sinners to salvation will drive you either to the insanity of prideful rejection of this message or humility. Takeaway is this. All of this is to say, if you are proud, or if you are proud from time to time, which is to say, if you are hearing my voice right now, then at some level you seriously doubt God's love and care for you. The encouragement is this. He has given you every reason to stop disbelieving in His love and care for you. Every reason you need. And there is reward for humility. We see this in the next phrase. So that at the proper time, He may exalt you. This is amazing. Right after telling us a very basic and frankly very encouraging motive for humbling ourselves, namely that God cares for you, This is why we should humble ourselves under His mighty hand because He's using that mighty hand to deliver us. That's the motivation for humility. Then He tells us that He will give us a particular grace. He's already told us in verse 5 He gives grace to the humble. Well, what type of graces will He give to the humble? He tells us explicitly one of the graces that He gives. Exaltation. That's amazing. And it's counterintuitive. Again, does that, does that not seem to contaminate the motive for humility? Think about it. Humble yourselves so that God will eventually make much of you. If you set out with that motive in your heart, doesn't that mean that you're not being very humble? Right? We, we, we've been told, at least, that we should be very, very selfless. We shouldn't think about ourselves or anything like that. That's somewhat the case, but I want to drill down and and talk about this because this is so, so important. What is going on here? Well, we need only consider that Jesus Christ did, in fact, know what his father would do for him after he humbled himself. Jesus knew that he would be given the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's not that Jesus didn't know about that. That does not pollute or invalidate His humbling of Himself. So if it works for Jesus, it should work for you. And this is where I think even one like C.S. Lewis misses the mark just a little bit. Yes, even the beloved Oxford Dawn can get it wrong from time to time. This is what he says about humility. I love this quote, just so you know. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. 
He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little too envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I mean, that's an amazing quote in and of itself. And I agree with it almost 100%. But I think he misses the mark at one tiny point. Because Peter here, as a foundational motivation for humbling yourself, says God will exalt you. God will exalt you. He insists that one of the primary pillars of Christian humility is belief, a firmly held, even stubborn belief that to the degree that I humble myself, God will lift me up and exalt me. Just like Jesus. God will vindicate the righteous. He will declare us just on the last day. Jesus Christ Himself will reward us with a crown of glory and give us a name, a new name, that He alone knows. And He will let us sit on the throne, not as a tourist, but as a vice-regent of all of creation. He will exalt you. And that brother and sister, is or ought to be a central pillar of your motivation to humble yourselves now. So, if I were to dare to modify the quote from Lewis, he will not be thinking about humility, he will not be thinking about his own earthly life at all, except how he may use it for the benefit of others. That's a clunky modification, and that's why people buy C.S. Lewis books and not mine. Not that I have one. But you have got to get this. This, this confidence that on the last day God will exalt you is a direct consequence. Understand the connection that He cares for you. God cares for you and will exalt you on the last day. Where, and this, this is answered and made so clear in asking this question, where is the Father taking us? What is He going to do for us? He is going to bless you. This is exactly the issue with the Exodus. Should not the pilgrim in the desert have thought this way? I will submit myself to His outstretched arm, humble myself to Him, even through every low point in this wilderness, because I know He will lead me into that fair land. And I will enter my inheritance. That should have been their thinking. You don't just go through the desert because that's, that's what God has for me and whatever He does after it doesn't matter. No, He promises to bless you and to exalt you. In short, for the Christian to say, on the one hand, I will humble, humble myself in the way that God wants you to mean that is exactly the same thing as saying God will exalt me one day. Theologically, it's the exact same content if you mean it right. To crystallize this even further, if you yield yourself to believe what God says about Himself and His care for you, then you will be 100% and oh so firmly fixed 
on the idea that He will exalt you. This is the attitude of the psalmist in so many psalms. What can man do to me? God is for me. This is what Asaph says in Psalm 73. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. And so in the meantime, we trust the process. See, this, this is what humility and believing in God's care all does for us. We have trial. The trials result in our refinement. We are refined ourselves and, and the quality of our faith is improved and shown. And then finally, we come to glory and exaltation. There will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. That's what Paul says in Romans. We will see this play out. It's almost an example of this principle when we get to verses 8 through 11. We'll have to save that for another week. Even after all this, all this discussion of humility and believing in God's care, believing in His will to exalt you and the true nature of humility, at least what it's not, we can be at a loss to know how to begin. This is all very theological. And I would say it's practical. But it's very difficult sometimes to know what the first step ought to be. How do we actually make progress in our daily lives to make ourselves humble? How do we start? What do we do to fight against pride that lingers, especially when it raises its ugly head? Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I don't remember when I first realized how significant this verse was and how helpful it was for myself and anyone. But it's been years and years and I've really never gotten over just how helpful it is. This is a big one. You might say I've been happily and hopefully trying to master this in my heart off and on for years and years. There are worlds that open up to you if you pay close enough attention. If you struggle with pride, if you struggle with worry, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with despair, which is to say, if you are in this room or are in earshot, then this verse is a treasury for you from heaven itself. It is a lifeline and a bright lamp in the dark for you. He says, casting. I say, if you're following along in the notes, the participle that changes everything. The big key is this. In part, to understand, uh, we must understand, in order to get this, how grammar works. I know, I hated grammar. It was my least favorite subject in all of my schooling until I started studying Greek. And then I began to appreciate English. Understanding and thinking carefully how grammar works is so key and why it is so important for you to use a translation like the ESV because many old translations or more paraphrasing translations miss the crucial sense of these words and how they connect together. So what's the big grammatical statement? Participles clarify imperatives. It's real exciting, isn't it? I went to a preaching class, they would say, never use that as a heading in your sermon. Participles clarify imperatives. And here's just a few funny examples. If I were to tell you, you need to watch Lord of the Rings, 
by purchasing the extended edition, because the theatrical edition is dead to me. So I gave you an imperative to watch something, and I modified it by a participle. I told you exactly how I wanted you to do the first bit. Or I could say, you need to smoke the brisket, being patient for at least an hour per pound at 225. So I told you what I wanted you to do, to smoke the brisket, but then I modified it with the participle. I told you exactly how you should do the first one by modifying it or clarifying it with a participle. The Bible does not just give us raw imperatives. That's the point. Do and don't. As hopeless, at least, I'm just speaking from experience. I hope you understand this. I hope that you get that I'm trying to connect you to the posture of mind and heart that connects you with God's grace and to convince you that He really does care for you. As hopeless for the quest for humility can often seem, the Bible gives us very clear, very basic, but oh so significant clarifying participles. How can we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand as we've just looked at? I mean, because if I just left you there, if the Bible just left you there, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. It'd be enough, and it would obligate us to obey, but it doesn't just leave us there. Here's why this verse is so helpful. How do we do that? How do we start? By actively casting your anxieties upon Him. gone to Seattle a few times. I know some of y'all hate the city. I love the city. And at the fish market, there's this place. It's well known. All the tourists gather to take a picture of this. But one guy at one end of the store makes a call because they get an order for a certain type of fish. And he throws the fish all the way across the store. It travels about 30 feet to a guy who catches it and wraps it up. That's the imagery that comes to my mind when I hear the word casting. Casting your anxieties on Him. Is that what you do in your heart? What does that mean? What even does that look like? And what does it tell us about our anxieties? A couple of things. I'll give you four. It means that your anxieties are not you. If you can cast it away from you, then it's not essential to you. They don't define you. Otherwise, you couldn't throw them away. Your anxieties are not you. Number two, it means that the casting, in the casting, you relinquish the hold they have over you and the hold that you're trying to exercise over them. Fundamentally, this is an issue of control. To cast something onto someone else, You're relinquishing your control over it and your desire to control it and giving it over to someone else. I'm very appreciative for our deacons. We'll be hearing their promises to our body this morning, but uh, one of them offered to help in a particular way, and I said, you know, you could really help me if you took over this specific project and I never had to care about it again. And he did. And I've never had to care about it again. Being confident in the person that you cast your cares on. Do you see how this all this connects? 
God is the one that you can cast all your anxieties upon and not have to worry about them anymore. The verb in the original, this is number three, the third thing this tells us about our anxieties, the verb is very basic. We might translate it something like throwing out. The only other place in the New Testament it's used in this exact form is when they take their cloaks and they throw it on the back of the donkey's colt for Jesus to sit on. So that idea, here it is, it's enveloping me, I'm taking it off and putting it somewhere else. That's the imagery Peter is using to help us understand what to do with our anxieties, our cares. And it is different, this is the fourth thing, it is different than saying, don't worry. That's probably the most unhelpful thing you can say to someone who's struggling with anxiety or worry or fear or cares. The Bible's answer for what to do with our cares, our worries, our anxieties, not just to stop, get some help, right? It's not Michael Jordan's advice. It's not just to stop worrying. Rather, we are supposed to take them, if you will, in the hands of your mind and throw them onto someone else to do something with them, to process them in the right way in your heart and mind. And we're to cast them upon Him. You know what? We might be good at casting our anxieties, but rarely ever do they reach the Lord because you're good at finding other people in the crossfire of casting your anxieties. How many people get in that line of fire? How many people have you treated as God by casting your anxieties on them instead of the Lord? And when we cast our anxieties on other people or try to hold on to our anxieties, it shows one of two things or both. Number one, it shows that we don't really believe, at least in that moment, just how good and loving and powerful God is. Or that He cares for us. But He does. God cares for you. Number two, it shows that we really don't understand how bad it is. This is the point I think that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, what what can you accomplish by your anxiety? And I would just say, our unwillingness to cast our anxiety upon the Lord means that we just don't really get how bad it is. Have you ever considered how on a razor's edge, on a knife's edge, your whole existence really is? One spasm at the wrong time on the freeway. Disaster. One wire going out at the wrong time on an airplane. Disaster. One solar flare. One black swan event in the market. Like It is so, so fragile. And you don't understand the permutations of all the things that could go wrong in your life. And I'm just telling you, if you struggle with anxiety, it's not near, it's, it's so much worse than you think. And the only person that can deal with that is a sovereign, loving God who cares for you. That's the point. You can't hold it. You were never meant to. He cares for you. Who in the world is the only person capable of dealing with that degree of complexity in every moment? You know how many variables are at play, even just right now? In your body, in your mind, in in, in this world that we just don't even think about. 
And He's holding it together by the word of His power. And He cares for you. And there is pride here as well. I know that there are some in this room who may look at your own heart and your own status, and you don't really struggle with anxiety or worry. And part of that is because I think you think you have it all together. You just don't understand how delicate or fragile life really is. You'll find out soon enough. I'm sorry, but you will. And when your life is in shambles, and all you're good at is doubling down on your own self-sufficiency, how in the world will you cast your anxieties upon the Lord? You're out of practice. You've never done that because you've been so silly in your self-sufficiency. And he tells us the extent of the exhortation. Casting all your anxieties. He could have just said your anxieties and just left it at that. But he says all so that we would not weasel our way out of this. Every one of them. We are to cast them upon the Lord. Every one of us, we are good about not being worried about a few things. We can either just persist in blissful ignorance, not worry. That's not actually the biblical answer. Or we can genuinely cast some of them onto the Lord, but hold on to a few of them because it feels oh so right to be worried about them. We feel so justified. Some of us more stable people call it being frazzled or the thing I like to say, bent out of shape. Or frustrated, right? A lot of sin gets just categorized under that word. And it looks so respectable because it makes so much sense. Well, it makes sense to be worried about this. Well, does it? This word all leaves us all on the hook to cast all our anxieties on Him. You are obligated by command of Scripture to cast that anxiety Like, locate it in your heart and mind right now. You know what I'm talking about. I don't, but you do. You are obligated by command of Scripture to cast that anxiety upon the Lord. And I know it makes so, so much sense. It feels so justified in feeling anxious about it. But remember in that moment, you're supposed to cast it upon the Lord because He cares for you. This is a sermon about God's care and the interrelatedness of humility and ridding ourselves of anxiety and how that all works together. If you really believe how caring and loving God is, you will be eager and happy to cast your anxieties upon Him. Notice, it's not wrong to have the anxiety. (laughs) It's just wrong to hold on to them. If we walk in humility before our God, then we will not leave a section of our hearts off from Him. We will not excuse ourselves from the applicability of this command. It's not a part of you. You don't need it. You don't need it anymore. You are never meant to worry about it. And you don't even get how bad it is. Give it to Him. He cares for you. And then he gives us the ground 
of the exhortation. So we've seen the extent of the exhortation and now the ground or, or why he can even claim this. I've said it over and over. This is the title. He cares for you. He wants you to make it his problem. And he likes it when you make it his problem because he cares for you. This is why we should cast our anxieties, our cares on him. It is so obvious. Why do we so easily forget? You could read this little phrase, He cares for you, emphasizing each of the main words, and you could make a sermon out of each one. He cares for you. Do you know who it is we're talking about? The Almighty Yahweh, the eternally existent One, the Ancient of Days, the Lord of Hosts. He cares for you. The one for whom every molecule is not just an idea, but is even, as it were, named. And every subatomic particle that we can't even see, He understands. And He's making sure it works every moment. He cares for you. And we could emphasize care. He cares for you. That being, that majestic and powerful being, that one for whom all the collecting knowledge of the theologians and the songwriters is but scratching the surface. He cares for you. God says of His people that we are the apple of His eye. Do you know how terrifying that statement would be if He weren't good? If He weren't loving? He occupies His thoughts upon you in a way that He doesn't the rest of creation the Bible says that God ponders our every step. We care about a lot of things, but then there are those few things that we really, really care about. Could be a loved one, could be a plan, could be a desire that you have, a dream, and you really care about that. That degree of difference, that is how God cares for you as His treasured possession. He doesn't just know about you, He cares for you. And He cares for you. We know that God loves the world, the whole cosmos, the whole creation. And of course we know that God loves the church, that Jesus loves the church, this, this group. We know that he, we, he loves His plan to glorify His name. We know all these ideas, but have you ever dared to sit down and sit in and fathom the idea that God cares for you? And not because He tricked Himself into doing so through the mechanism of salvation. He set His mind and heart upon you in love and His providential care before you were in Christ. And it is because of that love and providential care that you are in Christ. He uses a different word on purpose. The word used for our anxieties and God's care is different, different roots. Tried to do a deep dive on it. Couldn't come up with a whole lot. The main difference, of course, is that one is a noun and one is a verb. We are anxious. We have anxieties. Noun. It's just a part of our existence, unfortunately. In this world, you will have troubles. We have anxieties. But God cares. Verb. Active. Indicative. It carries the flavor of this. He cares right now for you in this very moment. 
And I don't know why Peter constructed it that way, but one of the reasons is is because I think uh, he's trying to communicate that God is not subject to passions like we are. Do you ever wake up anxious and have no idea why? We can be honest in this room, right? One of the main reasons that we can cast our anxieties upon the Lord is because He has none of His own. Anything He feels, He feels on purpose because He wants to. And anything He wants to feel is perfect and righteous and holy and good. And one of the things that He has chosen to feel and act upon is care for you. He cares for you. Us fathers, us parents can relate to this a little bit. Um, God pours this posture into our hearts towards our children. There's some biology at work, of course, but there's also something spiritual. My daughter Nova, she's about 19 months old. She picked up what appeared to me to be a box cutter. It was a wooden fish. Okay. It was gray, but it looked like a box cutter. And for the split second that I thought it was a box cutter, there was aggression, there was adrenaline, there was care, there was a plan, there was everything. And for that split moment, that's a glimpse of the degree to which God has chosen to care for His sons and daughters. Just a glimpse. It's frightening. The God, the God of the universe has chosen to feel that way towards you. His scope is also bigger. In saying all, I've been saying this all along, that God is the only one who can really know all the ins and outs of your concern. But more than that, this is a whole other sermon, but even the existence of things that tend to cause you anxiety are part of His providential care for you. That's, that's completely unexplored. But just know that His providential care, His willing, His deciding to place this level of care on you is the explanation behind everything. That's stunning. It's terrifying. I know. But that is the level of His fatherly care. As the Heidelberg, I know I quote it so many times, but all things must work unto my salvation because of the love of my Heavenly Father. It's going to happen. So a few soul-searching questions as we conclude the message. Number one, do you believe that He cares for you? Let me ask it this way. Your average person that you meet in the store or on the streets of Coeur d'Alene or at the farmer's market here in Hayden or at your workplace or even in this room, would they be able to detect by your posture and demeanor that you truly believe that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God who cares for you? How much do we portray the reality of our belief in God's care? Or do we know it theologically, we affirm it, but it hasn't gone deep? Number two, are you willing to yield yourself to believe firmly that He cares for you? And that's the same thing as asking, will you humble yourself under His mighty hand? If Eve 
had believed that God was as good as he said he was and claimed to be, there would have been never sin. If the people in the wilderness had believed that God was as good and kind as he claimed to be, they wouldn't have all died in the wilderness. And we are on the same precipice, about to enter into the promised land. Will we believe that God is as good as he says he is and cares about us as much as he claims to care about us? Number three, what circumstances or mindsets make it hard for you to believe that he cares for you? There are a lot. Related to this, what thoughts about God have you held on to that make it hard to humble yourself to him? Do you only see him as judge and king and domineering leader? Will you be willing to view him as caring, loving, providing father? Number four, what anxiety will you not cast upon him? You anxious about your work? Will you cast it upon him? Are you anxious about this church? Cast that anxiety upon him. Are you anxious about your children? Cast that anxiety upon him. Are you anxious about this nation? Cast that anxiety upon him. Are you anxious about your sin? Cast that anxiety upon him. Are you anxious about your relationships with your family? Maybe they're non-believing. Cast that anxiety upon him. And here's where the rubber really hits the road when it comes to the essence of faith. Are you anxious about your life? Are you anxious about death? To believe in the Lord Jesus is to entrust yourself to him. To believe that he is able to deal with that anxiety. You have a death problem. Because you're a sinner. We all have a death problem. And the only one who proved that he is both willing and able to deal with your death problem is the Lord Jesus. You can cast that anxiety upon him. Because He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of You and Your care for us. We can often be stubborn children who refuse to bring to You the anxieties You have told us to bring to You. We care about so many things. Help us understand that we were made to care for other things like your glory and praising you and joy in our own hearts. May we yield. May we submit ourselves and humble ourselves to believe the things about you that are really true, that you do, in fact, care for us the way you say you do. Help us rest in your love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.